even though we like to trust people, the reality is in the modern food production facility, you, you can't trust anyone. And all they had to do was go, and you know, I know I'm not testing earlier on, but that's a simple test, isn't it? Is it, if it's warm, dry, and it, it's obviously not been dried sufficiently, uh, we assume it's been processed sufficiently, then that's an issue and ensuring that everything's uh, sanitary. So even if you know the person, don't always check the load before you go in because it can be devastating. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Hello, and welcome to the Feed Science Podcast. I'm Adam Fairnolds here at North Carolina State University, and today my guest is joining me from the University of Guelph. This is Keith Warner, and he is the professor of food microbiology there at the university. Keith, how are you doing today? Good afternoon. Great to have you. Um, so we've had all kinds of different folks so far um, join us on the podcast, and uh, we'll, we hopefully got a, a lot more in us. And we've had folks that have done things on the you know the feed milling side, very specifically, or, or on quality. Um, different researchers involved, um, and we're always trying to get some different new perspectives. And you've got some different perspectives to bring from that microbiological side of things that might be happening with the animal food and with feed milk. So I think that's where a lot of our conversation will go today. But to start off, if you wouldn't mind, give us, um, if you would give the audience a bit of your background and and how you came to be, where you're, where you're at, and what you, uh, what you were focusing on now there at your program at the university. Right. So very interesting story, my background, when you look back on it. Um, when I left school, I actually became a chef. And, uh, you know, with chef's life, it's not so good. You're waking up at five o'clock to give people breakfast and then going to bed at 11 o'clock at night. And so I kept that up for about three or four years. And then I literally saw an advert in a paper talking about a food science uh, degree. And so I basically uh, thought, yes, this seems uh, a better alternative than being a chef. So I uh, did a diploma in food science and I went to the University of Nottingham to do a degree in food science. Then I kind of switched gears again and I went to uh, the University of Aberystwyth in Wales to do actually a degree in uh, microbial physiology, which was looking at uh, the physiology of lactic acid bacteria. And then I even did a, another jump to go to the University of Manchester, where I worked on biosensors for uh, you know, glucose sensors, creatine sensors, things like that. And then I returned to the University of Nottingham to become a food microbiologist. And then back in 2002, which seemed uh, an age away, and again, it was just by passing an advert in a paper. <laughs> but I saw the University of Guelph wanted a food microbiologist. So I applied for it, and uh, obviously I got it because I'm here. Uh, what we've been doing over the last 20 years in developing uh, our sort of food safety program, which is basically food safety, but also you know, goes into other areas, is uh, focusing on intervention strategies because there are different strands of research. You get the fundamental research that says gene A 
looks at GY to have an effect on what X. Uh, you get to diagnostics saying, oh, we can measure things. But in our research, it's always been mostly applied. So we're, we're there to solve problems. And the sort of problems we've solved is to do with things like decontamination of fresh produce. And we've looked at how produce gets contaminated, how pathogens interact, and we have interventions. We've obviously worked on biosensors going back to my University of Manchester days on detecting not only uh, pathogens but mycotoxins. We've also done fundamental research, which has taken us into the field and uh, looking at uh, the ways animals um, acquire pathogens, uh, you know, the pathogens that affect us as consumers, and then try to bring interventions to that. Okay, so you missed something there at the very end, I, I think is an interesting uh, maybe place to start. When you think about things from a food safety perspective, pathogens, like you said, it, it could be mycotoxins, it could be enteric pathogens or whatever. What do you see are any of the, the differences or challenges, let's say, looking at those that might actually impact the animal versus those that might go through the animal and all the way into into people as far as when we look at you know the severity and, and what kind of mitigations we should be looking at, where our strategy should be? Very interesting question. And uh, the reality is, is that we have silos, we call them in uh, in science, in that food microbiologists stay away from pathologists, which obviously are the ones that uh, are more focused on that. But I think the well research industry are starting to consider this what we call a one health approach. Uh, because in the food industry, I remember when I first started here, going down to certain commodity groups, say, and you would suggest to them saying, really, you need to solve issues at the farm level. And their attitudes were, well, no, processing takes care of everything. But as we know from uh, lessons learned, it's not always the case. So some of these interventions that can be applied at the farm level, which both uh, handle human pathogens and the animal pathogens. And one very good example is our recent research in developing decontamination methods for hatchery eggs. So what the project was to do with is actually inactivating things like Salmonella and Campylobacter. So they prevent, uh, obviously, getting into the food chain. And the good thing about our research is we collaborate with a lot of different uh, partners. And obviously, at the hatchery level, Salmonella is a thing, but the big things are like Apex, you know, the avian pathogenic E. coli and things like that. So we do get crossover with that, but it's interesting. Research is kind of shifting towards it. But even now, you know, if you put in a application for uh, protecting animals uh, rather than you know, basically preventing salmonella, it doesn't get a very good view. And it's quite interesting. I was involved in a project where I was trying to express this, how we could not only control uh, human pathogens, but animals. And they said, no, animal pathogens are separate. So there's a way to go. But I think people are conning on that say, yes, if you um, prevent pathogens at the farm level, then you get other added benefits. And, you know, it's interesting looking through, again, past these 20 years, how one of the most important things in farming, especially animal farming, is literally uh, sanitation and i was quite amazed uh, you know the standards some have even in the food processing industry but i think again things are turning sure no I, yeah I, I think so and it's an interesting conversation that i know we have you know especially um 
you know, I, I think it's kind of happening worldwide, but it, it has its, uh, it's almost kind of a heart hierarchy. I think, you know, things that happen in Europe and then things kind of in Canada and then down into the U S uh, as far as looking at some of those different, especially on things like pathogens and looking at that and saying, okay, you know, do we just focus on, well, is this a food safety issue or not because it impacts the animal or is it a food safety issue or not? If it doesn't impact the animal, but could impact people. And, you know, so for example, on, on pet food, you know, okay, if, if the pet food, because it's going into the home, no salmonella, no salmonella, period. Can't can't be there because people are going to be handling it. Small children might get access to it, that sort of thing. As we're on livestock feeds, we say, look, it's not being handled by people. If it's not going to make the animal sick and we don't see it pass through the animal to the humans, if it's not a, you know, a pathogen that's got a serotype that is impacting the animal, um, you know, maybe then it's not such of a, a big deal, but we, we see different places around the world look at it differently. And, and we all kind of seem to be moving in that, that same, same direction. Um, as far as mitigation strategies for things like food safety issues, specifically related to these biological problems, um, what kind of things have your research shown on the blood I know it's not all focused on the animal food side, but, you know, just kind of expanding into that animal food side, you know, what kind of things seem to work and what kind of things do people maybe think that work that, yeah, that's really not worthwhile. That's not doing anything. That's a very good question as well. You know, the uh, ongoing philosophy, uh, still now, even though people don't, doesn't really work very well, is the art of testing. So, Every time there's an outbreak, every time there's an incident, people fall back on testing. And the, the reality is testing is like a safety net. Um, unless you've got a really tight net, a lot of samples, um, and the target's fairly high, then testing is going to be really challenging. And I've seen it, especially with the fresh produce people, uh, that uh, when there's an outbreak of E. coli to do with romaine lettuce, they do five samples and say, we're fair clear, we're good to go, which isn't right. And there is a kind of drifting now towards real interventions that it's taken a long time. And the one we kind of developed uh, is based on what we call the hydroxy radical process. So this is where you have basically hydrogen peroxide mist, ozone, and uh, UV converts, that's what we call hydroxy radicals. So hydroxy radicals are found in nature, you know, in the clouds, where they're thought to control pollution because we've got ozone there, we've got sunlight to produce these radicals. And we focused a lot of time on fresh produce like fruit and vegetables. But we actually did do a project with uh, raw pet food because, as you rightly said, it's becoming much more popular now uh, for one reason or another. And the reality is, is that... Um, other ways of saying, well, let's wash it in sanitizer like chlorine or paracetic acid. They don't work at all because at the end of the day, you've got the quality of a product to think about. And I think with our research, that's one of the big things is that we don't just go in there and say, well, we're going to uh, decontaminate it. You might not have anything left afterwards, but it's not going to have salmonella. We actually uh, look at the quality of it. And in that project we did with the pet food, uh, yeah, we basically demonstrate how we could inactivate salmonella on fr it was frozen pet food as well because the process is so rapid that it can be done so to sum up then you know basically you need effective interventions but you need to always balance uh, quality versus safety 
and also bring tangible benefits. You know, tangible benefits being maybe extended shelf life and things like that. But as I say, uh, the most frustrating thing is when people say, well, we'll test our way to safety. It never works. And the trouble is they generate data which uh, they don't understand too much, and that makes it even worse. So that's the way it goes. Yeah, we. I, I know I've had a number of conversations, as as have other folks um, that I work with regularly on the on the quality food safety side of things, and especially in those facilities, like you said, like a raw pet food where having a mitigation strategy is really difficult because you take it cooking out of the equation. And uh, that idea of, well, you know, we can, you know, we could test every lot. Oh, well, or we could test even more than that and and getting everyone to understand, you know, no, that's good. That's a good practice to do as far as to verify that something else is working. But in and of itself, you know, the testing is is not a control. It, it, it is a verification step at at best in most cases. And that's uh, that you're, you're right. That's something that's hard to get get folks into. You also mentioned that the safety standpoint, unfortunately, that's a another part outside of the potential cooking process, whether it be, you know, extrusion in pet food or pelleting, um, assuming that you then somehow keep the system closed and, and don't reintroduce, uh, you know, something using ambient air and that sort of stuff, which we most often do when we're doing thermal processing in animal food. A lot of those mitigation strategies we have for things like pathogens, aren't exactly things we like to uh, handle very much. A lot of them are, are somewhat unpleasant. Um, have you guys specifically looked at any of that in your work as far as the things that, that work well that also maybe are a little um, less undesirable to work with? Like, uh, you know, formaldehyde works really, really well. It's really good product um, from the standpoint of, of working um, and has worked for a long time but it's got obviously some concerns with people working with it. So are there, are there things that, that are you found that work pretty well that actually also aren't so horrible to deal with? Uh, the formaldehyde question has been really risen in the uh, hatchery business, you know, because uh, I visited a hatchery once and, uh, for those who don't know about hatch uh, fuel fumigation by formaldehyde, essentially what you do, you get a closed room and you've got two chemicals and you kind of activate them and you better get out that room pretty quick because formaldehyde knock you back. And, you know, but that week I was visiting saying, well, we nearly had a close uh, call because somebody tripped over and nearly didn't get out of the room. I thought, wow, that's the job to go to, isn't it? Uh, but there's other things as well, uh, such as um, the byproducts. And in Europe, they're definitely moving away from formaldehyde. So even though it's traditional in the hatchery business, um, certainly there is dangers to it, not only for worker safety, but, you know, going to the point of um, uh, the actual byproducts form, because in Europe, they're obsessed with byproducts. Oddly enough, they're not so interested in pathogens, even though they've got a pathogen problem, uh, but they're very interested in things like that. And what you tend to find is, as you probably experienced yourself, is things tend to migrate. You know, so what happens in Europe tends to happen in North America a few years later. And uh, to that end, you know, um, you know, thinking about hatchery eggs and things like that, uh, there has been sort of alternatives like ozone introduced. Uh, ozone, again, isn't the most pleasant gas. Certainly has a negative effect on hatcheries. Chlorine dioxide has been a favor. Again, if you're causing chlorine dioxide, you don't want to uh, you want to hold your breath a bit. And again, it's devastating. So 
in our process, we don't have this sort of batch system. It's a continuous one with a hydrogen peroxide, UV, and uh, ozone. And it takes about 10 seconds to decontaminate eggs. So you can really put a few in. Uh, and it's really, uh, hopefully, uh, after a few commercial trials we've done, it's looking very promising. But uh, what you come across is this sort of barrier to adoption of technology. And it's quite interesting. Uh, you know, as researchers, we tend to go in the lab. We spend day and night sometimes working on projects, getting the funding in to get them done. And you deliver a product saying, look, this is an alternative. And it's amazing how the industry kind of um, has a barrier to it, saying, well, do we really need it, our traditional approaches? And that was quite eye-opening to me, is that how far you have to go. Even now, when we've got a validated system, published research and whatnot, you get uh, industry saying, well, not really sure, even though it's a viable alternative. But certainly, um, again, it's this case of balancing out things. You can't just come with ozone or well, chlorine dioxide and say, yes, it kills everything. You've got to have something afterwards. But we really have to be cautious now, especially of um, the old methods. You know, glu I remember using glutaraldehyde in the hospitals once. Uh, yeah, formaldehyde, all these. We've got better technologies now. We kind of have to use them. Once again, my guest today is Dr. Keith Warner, uh, professor of food microbiology at the University of Guelph. Continuing on that conversation, you know, I, I agree with you, you know, when there's those new technologies and, and certainly in the feed industry, um, even even if we separate the feed industry out from, let's say, the pet food industry, take the animal food and split them in two, that adoption of technology is always going to be a little further down the line. Um, and as much as anything, you know, it, it's, it's going to be related to, as you said, we have these old ways, the old ways seem to work fine. It also has something to do um, economically. The margins are different. The ability to invest in the new technology is different on on that livestock side. And so it needs to be proven somewhere else. And then the technology costs need to be realized and come down a little bit before we can use them. Um, but I also think some of the other points were, were interesting from the standpoint of going back to that formaldehyde discussion. Is it is it something everybody likes to to work with? No, maybe, no, maybe not. Is it the safest thing to work around? No, no, maybe not. But at the same time, it works. It works very well. There are certain pathogens and, you know, not on every piece of wood we can find. We have something like, you know, African swine fever that we know that that's a product that could do something with. And yet we hear, well, well, we'd like to phase it out because it's not safe. And we say, well, but hold on. Are there other alternatives that are feasible? And even if those ones that are feasible are also not necessarily the greatest things to work with either, then, you know, what's the rush until we find the right the right thing I think. quite interesting is that yeah people like to cling on to the old methods and that and uh, the reality is is that it has to be uh, signs of change or you have to kind of change the way of thinking and look at the investment and what was interesting is the technology we developed uh, in the lab actually did get commercialized by cleanworks scott and when we got this sort of boost, say, if you want, commercial boost, it was interesting that it always was from a crisis. So um, to go back uh, a few years, uh, we developed a system. We've been working on this system for about uh, 10 years. And in 2015, we approached by a candy apple maker, of all things. So back in those times, uh, in 2015, there was a listeria outbreak linked to apples, uh, candy apples especially, 
But it wasn't the actual uh, person who came to us that had the problem. It was a problem in California, and it really had a devastating effect. All the retailers said, look, we're not going to stock candy apples ever again. If we do, you need to go refrigerated, which made no sense at all because the stevia grows under cold. But the thing was is that uh, this, when the company uh, came to us, and said, look, we want, we're interested in UV. And I said, no, no, we want, I've got another system which really can boost it. Yeah, the hydrogen peroxide knows only UV. Anyway, to the point is that we proved it was successful and he introduced it. And basically what he did then, he got uh, a big mark on all the other candy apple producers. So when they were allowed in the store, uh, people would come to him for the simple reason he's got a decontamination stuff he's not coming up with testing he's not saying i'm going to wash them in chlorine and that was a boost to his industry i think his market size just grew by 10 percent. and the other sort of um boost was during the pandemic i won't say which one um and again because people were looking for ppe decontamination and they looked at our system and said yeah that's uh, just what we need and they introduced that and again, it gave you this sort of uh, coverage that you would. So when people talk about investing in technology, I know, especially in the food safety circles, they always say, well, how much is it going to cost me? Because I know food safety doesn't sell. And this is the importance of having tangible benefits. And in our sort of system, our tangible benefits are, well, for the masks, you can just use it where you are rather than have someone else mask to wear later on. And in terms of the candy apples, it extended to shelf life. So that's the kind of things you focus on. But this, you're right what you say. Um, a lot of people always think about saying, well, these methods have served us well so far. Yeah, they have until somebody says, yeah, formaldehyde is totally banned, like the glutaraldehyde and uh, the old methyl bromide used to be good in its day. So there is these kind of things. And if you know, I think people adopting new technologies do, do get a lead, especially now because of the power of retailers and whatnot. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly that um, being that that first adopter, uh, I, I think, is proven in all kinds of different you know industries and and uh, different spaces throughout retail and throughout industry wh- wherever. Being that first adopter to something that works ends up uh, usually being being pretty good because to some extent you can. You know, get an economic benefit or realize a marketing benefit or that sort of thing. Um, I think, oh, sorry there. Yeah, I think yeah, what you have to do is really be cautious. Uh, you know, in the food, and I'm probably sure in the animal feed business as well, in any business, uh, the market is dominated by snake oil salesmen. And I remember when I first came here, there was a big fuss about ozone, saying oh, ozone can cure and do everything. And people have been sold you know, systems for a quarter of a million dollars and they never delivered. And I think this, again, comes to the point of being a first adopter means you're like the first animal <laughs> into the field in that if there's anything there that's going to get you, it's going to be the first one. And so you need to be very wary about uh, the promises made and not just having words, but actually looking at data. And it pays to even have uh, consultants look at data because I've seen in the UV business, in the ozone business, in sanitating business, a lot of people get stung very quickly. Sure. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's also also an excellent point. There's uh there's always some new additive or or new, like you said, chemical or something that's gonna solve everything. We we certainly see it plenty in, in our industry where 
something comes in and, oh, it's going to, this is going to make a better pellet. It's going to also help with some sort of pathogen resistance. Oh, it's got a nutritional thing. You, uh, you look at some of those and go, well, if it's that, if that's good, I assume everybody's using it, right? Well, no, we don't have that many people using it yet. Oh, I wonder why that may be. Um, switching gears a little bit, I, I believe your lab also has done some, some work that I, I think some folks in our audience might be interested in hearing something about on the impact of the use of antibiotics and where that's tied into resistance and some other things like that. And that's, um, you know, while a lot of our, a lot of our folks may not necessarily be on that kind of epidemiological side of things, we have seen medications come and go in the feed mill and, and, you know, the, we've seen moving towards no antibiotics ever. And now we've seen some companies actually coming back and saying, well, that might've been too far. Um, what are some of the things that, that, uh, you guys have learned as far as where that might be added in the future? Yeah, it's an interesting story about, uh, obviously antimicrobials in feed, you know, going back to uh, when they were first discovered, you know, I think they were abused right from the, the get go because, uh, even in the 1950s, people were starting to see antibiotic resistances. And the reality is, is that over in Europe, they actually banned antibiotics way back in 2000. I think 2006 was the, the uh, one where it all banned. And the problem here in North America is that we use antibiotics to compensate for poor sanitation. Yeah, because sanitation in animal production here and you compare it to Europe, is very different. And it might seem logical saying, well, yes, if you've got unsanitary uh, bars, high-density animals, you're going to get problems, and you do. And they say, oh, let's use an antibiotic uh, in order to uh, control the pathogens and uh, protect them, which worked for a while, obviously. But, you know, I always say nature has a way of beating nature. It's like this arms race. And... When obviously, as a food microbiologist, our sort of uh, first contact is to do with this sort of initiative, which was by a fast food chain, to say, we're going to go antibiotic-free. And the reality is, anybody in the business knows there is no real antibiotic residues. <laughs> you can't just like, stick antibiotic residues in, a, in meat and expect it to be accepted. So, And I think that's where this sort of... Um, train of uh, banning antibiotics came really picked up speed and i always think about the antibiotics as a bit like prohibition back in the 20s and 30s you either have them or you totally have absence of them and obviously that was a disaster because it's all right taking antibiotics out but if you don't replace them with something then you're gonna have issues and you know i saw all this research going on about essential oils zinc oxide and all these other things, which we know, and even bacteriophages, we knew even then these aren't solutions. So what's interesting about the antibiotic uh, banding argument, I always put this in class as well, is saying, okay, is there a risk of antibiotics? What is the risk to do with antibiotics in animal production? Obviously, building resistance, and which when we acquire them, that's going to be resistant to antibiotics used on us, and we're going to get secondary infections and whatnot. But the other thought about it is animal welfare, because uh, you know when you say to people, well, your mortality rate is going to increase, you've got no protection, that's going to be a, an issue. So going back to your point, saying, yeah, some are reoccurring. You know, basically what we like to call it, isn't it, is antibiotic uh, stewardship, as in 
Um, I remember being at a conference once, someone made a very good analogy saying, we're going to be the Budweiser of antibiotics, which basically means have it occasionally. You're not banning, you're not certainly certainly champagne. But he had a very good point, is that you use some, you manage the antibiotics, so you don't deprive animals of antibiotics, and you use some when you need to, but don't let it be a compensation for poor sanitation. Because the reality is, and uh, animals get the brunt of it, saying, oh, you know, it's animal feed and that. But, you know, I think we all know uh, aquaculture is a lot to do with um, antibiotic resistance. And the people, you know, they go to the doctor. The doctor's automatically used to, anyway, in the good old days, give you a prescription for antibiotics. You feel better in a few days, and then you just say, well, I don't need any more. It's time to get the drink going and things like that. And obviously, they build up resistance as well. So in terms of antibiotic resistance, we see it. Certainly, as I say, we kind of focus more on the uh, the food side, but we have got into farms and looked at ways to reduce it, irrigation water, but focusing on the sanitation. But certainly, antibiotics in the very nature, it, they are going to obviously become more redundant. And I remember some Clostridium perfringens uh, with chickens, for example. The reason to stop using them, not because they wanted to sell to fast food chains that just weren't useful anymore. And what's interesting also is that, you know, people say, um, oh, we need new antibiotics. And there was an interesting antibiotic, I don't know if you remember trioxidin. Uh, well, basically what this was is a brand new class of antibiotic after 30 years. And uh, they did clinical trials and, well, they did do clinical trials that demonstrated efficacy. And you would have thought um, the drug companies would have really leapt onto it. But the reality is it never even got to drug trials. And when you hear like stories about, oh, we've got a new class of antibiotic, AI has discovered it, made a new antibiotic, the pharmaceutical companies don't want to invest in it because in their mind, the antibiotic-resistant crisis has to come so much that then it becomes profitable. And I found it a bit alarming that, but I can believe it's true. So... Certainly, um, we have to manage antibiotics. Europe's done it quite well. And can we get those kind of conditions over here in North America? And that's a big question because it's totally different uh, farming practices and whatnot. Sure, yeah. And, it, and you know, it's, it's always been interesting from the, from the, the feed side of it. Uh, you know, we obviously, we want the animals to be healthy and we want them to, you know, have good welfare, all these other kind of things. Uh, at the same time, you know, nobody in the uh, in the feed mill specifically. So I'm not I'm not talking about managing live production or anything, but just the feed mill specifically. We we don't cry very much when someone wants to remove the the antibiotics because we say, oh, okay, well that's one less thing to inventory and do the record keeping on and and regulatory. You know, when they show up and we say, oh, we don't have any here, then that's a lot easier. Um, but it does seem like maybe, like you said, like that pendulum swung from they were overused and and to the point where maybe people weren't doing the husbandry things that they should have been doing because ah, the, the you know the not even necessarily intentionally, um, but not seeing problems that were coming up from poor husbandry because the the drugs were basically over overshadowing that or controlling it sort of a thing, and then we switched to these you know 
no antibiotics ever. And maybe that has helped a little bit with the husbandry side of things and making people have to do a better job. But then if maybe they've realized, yeah, but like you said, the data doesn't necessarily suggest that is that that has made some sort of huge dent in you know overall, you know, antibiotic resistant infections in in people and, and things like that. So maybe they're still a tool that we should have. And I also think the consumer you made a really good point. I think most of the consumers are thinking along the lines of, well, I don't want that because I don't want it in my food. And we all wave our hands and say, it's not in your food. Like that's, that's been a rule from, you know, the very beginning. It's not that it's more of a concern about potential resistance, but also, and I really liked your point there. Oh, have you thought about the fact though, that when we use these, the animals maybe have better welfare in certain cases. And when they do get sick, which is going to happen, no matter how good the husbandry is, um, we want to have this tool and you don't want that tool taken away. The animals would suffer. Um, there may also be things related to sustainability. And if we use these, perhaps we can use some more sustainable practices and other things that we do if we're, if we're there. So I think the, uh, I think the topic is actually a lot more complex than than folks like they can. We've seen, of course, too, the data that has suggested in the past that sometimes when everything is banned from a prophylactic standpoint and a good management isn't put in place, they end up using more for a treatment than they used, they would have used from a prophylactic standpoint in the first place because there wasn't a plan before the ban went in place. They just stopped it and then went, uh-oh, well, now what do we do? Because they didn't they didn't plan to do something else. So. It was quite interesting. After the uh, ban was, well, banned, you know, this voluntary ban was put in place, what farmers resorted to is actually getting antibiotics on the market. You know, they would, and especially in developing countries, this is the biggest problem in that they get antibiotics, even if they're outdated and things like this, and they use them without supervision, which, as you know, it makes the problem 20 times worse, for sure. Well, it's been a really um, very interesting conversation. I, I wanted to ask you um, before we before we kind of get here on the close, I, I would imagine that potentially with the work that you've done on the food microbiology side, that and it, as it happens with universities, for those in our audience that don't know, when something comes up, a problem somewhere, uh, whether it be something that's just a, a company doing some sort of quality control or it is actually something where there's been a complaint made, they like to uh, search out folks at the university to that, in theory, don't have commercial ties to people that can that can act as uh, an unbiased reviewer of things. I was wondering if you might have anything interesting, any interesting stories from over the years of of things that showed up that might be related to animal animal feed um, that had something to do with microbiological uh, concerns that you know we wouldn't have maybe thought of before. Oh, yeah, I've got a few stories, actually. I think we could do a, a separate podcast on one. <laughs> but um, basically, as university people, we are that kind of middle ground in that uh, third party. And I know some people say, are oh, you in bed with industry and government? It's not quite the case. You know, if we were, we would be, we would be sitting here, we'd be in industry. And I can't tell you, obviously, the specific details, but it was an interesting case, which would be of interest. Um, to animal feed uh, producers and also farmers. So what this case was surrounding is a, a feed supplier used to make a custom feed for a goat farm. And 
no problem. You know, they're all pally together. And uh, what they would do is they'll deliver the feed. Uh, the farmer themselves will put it in a silo, then feed the goats and get uh, baby goats, kids, I think they call them, isn't it? And, uh, you know, get milk. Well, what happened on this one occasion is that they got delivered some feed and they stored it and they fed it to the goats. And within a week, uh, about a quarter of the herd has died. Uh, there was abortions of kids and it was pretty devastating to this goat farm, as you can imagine, it was a small thing. And, uh, you know, we were brought in to, sol- not sol- <laughs> say solve the case, we, were provi- we had to go in there and get evidence. And what had happened, the long story short, is that um, as normal, they, they put an order in for the actual dried feed, which was extruded, but it was a rush order. And when they delivered it, you know, we questioned, saying, well, what does it look like? Said it was warm, it was moist. And the problem with that is that they trusted their supply. They were pals with them. You know, why would they do this? But in this haste, they put it into the silo, which was basically an incubator. And the worst thing happened, Listeria monocytogenes took hold. And to those who don't know about Listeria monocytogenes, which is, I see most people do, this is what causes death of ghosts, and this is what causes stillbirth. And the lesson learned really on this case was that even though we like to trust people, the reality is in the modern food production facility, you, you can't trust anyone. And all they had to do was go, and you know, I know I unlocked testing earlier on, but that's a simple test, isn't it? Is it if it's warm, dry, and it, it's obviously not been dried sufficiently, uh, we assume it's been processed sufficiently, then that's an issue. And ensuring that everything's uh, sanitary. So even if you know the person, don't always check the loads before you go in because it can be devastating, which it was. So that was one example. Another example uh, we had with a feed uh, producer was uh, they were kind of, they produced basically gluten-based feed. And uh, they kind of departed from this sort of venture to make gluten fertilizer because gluten fertilizer doesn't have all these nasty chemicals but the problem was is that they just followed the instructions and they never questioned and long story short they changed the formula they basically the person who hired this or commissioned this facility they basically changed the formulation and the company just produced it and obviously, it went very wrong. It spoiled very quickly, exploding bottles. And they were trying to get litigation to say, well, you told us to do it. And they say, well, you should have not done it, <laughs> anything like that. So you've got to be wary. Anytime you enter a contract, be sure what you're doing. And the last example, because like I said, I don't want to go too many, was an interesting one at a pet food facility where they did pelleted feed. And they were getting these salmonella positives, and they couldn't trace it anywhere. You know, they went through all this root root cause analysis where they said, oh, it's this ingredient in that facility. But what was happening, uh, to long story short, is that when they found a salmonella positive, they went in with their hoses of water and tried to sanitize the area rather than doing a root cause analysis. So they were basically sanitizing an area where all the evidence was. And after we did our investigation, we actually found the culprit which was just a small, tiny crack in a pump uh, casing where basically the water was getting in, the salmonella was just growing into biofilms and contaminating all the products. So 
the, there's lessons we learn as, like I say, academics. Uh, we can go in there and look objectively on things like that. And anytime you have issues, uh, it's all through root cause analysis and having controls in place where you don't set yourself up for failure and things like that. That's yeah. That's that's a. I, I really like those stories. That and and I like that. Uh, kind of that focus on that that root cause because that kind of goes through all all three of your your stories there of you know I, I, that last one's particularly interesting of you thought by solving the problem what you do is just go clean everything but what that did was not allow you to then go find your problem because then you cleaned away the problem for just long enough that you couldn't find it and then it, it came back up and and on the on the one with the the goat feed I think it, it I agree with you from the standpoint of if, if you're going to trust a supplier, you better know a lot about what kind of quality methods they're doing and, and all that sort of thing to make sure that they're someone that you know you're going to consistently get things from. So not only saying, hey, the feed is good, but also what do I know about their, uh, what do I know about their practices? And so if you're buying feed from a, a you know large facility in bulk that sort of thing actually knowing what are the kind of things that they do in their facility uh, that will keep my feet safe and if I'm buying something you know in a bag I want to do some research on who is this company and are they you know, are there any third-party program seals that are on their bags of feed that let me know that oh they must subscribe to a particular program that I'm sure is is giving them good quality um, I think it also goes to show that idea of there are places from the second the ingredients show up and in fact wherever the ingredients come from all the way until the animals consume it and we, we focus a lot on the the process itself in the facility but from the time that ingredient is sourced to the time that animal eats it there's a lot of places where things can uh, can go wrong um, whether it be in our facility or not so i think that's pretty interesting it's time for our famous three all right. So in finishing up, there's a few questions we, we always uh, ask our guests uh, to try to give some information to our, our audience. Uh, the first is in your particular area. And of course, in this case, it would probably want to be something that is um, uh, not incredibly scientific in nature. I'm not going to send everybody to go read a textbook, but is there a particular resource? Um, and it, it could be a book or it could be a periodic periodical or website or something that you would suggest, hey, if you're in the animal food industry and you're interested in learning more about microbiological safety and, and things like that, this would be a good resource for you to familiarize yourself with. It's quite timely, actually. We've just finished um, our FAO, the FAO, the FAO of the United Nations uh, Food Safety Toolkit. And what this toolkit is, and you can go online uh, to find it, uh, we call it the Food Safety Toolkit for some odd reason. And what that does, it's uh, animal feed producers, farmers, anybody to go in. And what uh, the FAO have is a wealth of knowledge about everything you could think of. So uh, I would promote that one for sure. Uh, make sure the, uh, obviously, the material is uh, genuine because it's very easy to get misinformation. That's what I like about the FAO. So the FAO, um, food, it's called the Food Safety Toolbox, but animal feed people will certainly benefit from it as well. For sure. Absolutely. Great suggestion. How about a resource outside of the area of expertise? Um, things that, you know, whether it had to do with management or dealing with people or anything like that that you found particularly valuable in your, your career, you know, 
again, a, a book or something that you said, hey, you know what? I think everybody should read this. It's an interesting one. Like the closest I've ever come to appreciating, and I don't really appreciate it to be honest, <laughs> is the uh, the food safety culture uh, by Frank Yarnis. And some people say, well, it's a very woolly concept. You know, it's basically at the end of the day, food industry, whether it's the feed industry, whether it's uh, a food service outlet, whether it's a farmer, it's doing the right thing. And it's quite interesting. Certain people don't do the right thing. They do the opposite of right. They'll do it. And what I like about Frank Yarnes' book called uh, basically Food Safety Culture is the fact that it introduces this concept who tries to understand why people do the things they do and how to improve it. And the other sort of book I found, uh, I call it inspiring more than anything else, was uh, Poisoned, which really tracks the story. And there's a Netflix, I think, uh, on this. Uh, Poisoned is the story about the E. coli 0157 outbreak, uh, basically back in the 93, which I think was a big game changer. What it does is take uh, the sort of lawyer involved, Bill Marler, and how he strove to change the system uh, which eventually does and still does to this day. So if you want inspiration, uh, you can watch that or you can read that. But I think that's what it's to do with, is getting people to do the right thing. And it might sound easy, but in reality, it's very difficult. But that's what it is. Absolutely. And that kind of leads into our, our last question of, if you could identify, and, and it, it could be in academia, it could be in the, the people you work with, in the industry, but if you could identify a the this is a specific trait that I see in the people that I've worked with that really makes them successful, what would you describe that might be? I would say it's uh, literally a hundred percent dedication. I remember in my youth, I went to a judo class. I never got past white belt, but the the instructor said something really powerful, which I remember today. And they said, if you're going to do anything. Always put a hundred percent in. Don't go by halves. And I think I've uh, lived by that kind of virtue. So, you know, when we go um, to do research, we go a hundred percent in. You know, it might mean working seven days a week. It might doing things like this. But I can see the point. And when I see people fail, it's because they don't do. It's a kind of half-hearted. So I always go by that motto, even though it didn't teach me judo. I suppose it gave me a good ticket light. There you go. Absolutely. Once again, my guest today has been Dr. Keith Warner, Professor of Food Microbiology at the University of Well. Thank you very much, Dr. Warner, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Again, I'm Adam Barinholz at North Carolina State University, and this has been the Feed Science Podcast. Mm-hmm.